You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Where God's called us and provided for you in the pew rack there in front of you. Uh, and just take that, if you will, and, and turn with us. We're going to be doing a little bit of Bible drilling as we go through this um, uh, this morning. I want to say to you, as you're turning to Romans chapter 9, that next Sunday night, we're going to take the entire evening worship service for a prayer meeting and a discussion time. As those, most of you know, the property next door to us, the school board property, which is seven acres, is going to come available. Uh, it has not been available until the last couple of weeks. The school board has decided to sell it, and they're going to be auctioning it off. And we have to have a bid in if we are going to bid on that property by November the 15th. And so our land committee and pastor's cabinet have been talking and been praying about this. And we need to, uh, uh, you need to pray for the, that group as they lead. And then next Sunday night, we're going to have an opportunity just to go before the Lord as a, as a body and just kneel before the Lord and spend some time in prayer together. And then we're going to answer all of your questions. And you'll have an opportunity to ask questions. And the uh, land committee and the pastor's cabinet will be taking the leadership in that meeting. And I want to encourage you to be here. Next Sunday night may be the most important meeting that we've ever had in the history of this church. Next Sunday night at 6.30. So plan to be here to be a part of this. Uh, pray with us all week long. We just want to do what the Lord wants us to do. Nothing more than that. And so you pray for uh, that meeting and plan on being here and being a part of that. Romans chapter 9. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic of mightiness or mediocrity, the church's choice. I'm going to do something a little different this morning than... Uh, than I normally do, and something that is a little bit difficult for me to do. I'm normally an expository preacher. That means that I like to take one passage of Scripture and spend the time just exposing that passage of Scripture and tearing it apart and taking it verse by verse and word by word sometime and trying to find the truth that is, is bound within that particular passage of Scripture. It's a verse by verse pattern that we normally follow, but this morning I'm going to break that pattern and preach a topical message. I don't do that often, and you'll not hear me do that very often. But every now and then, it's suitable, and it kind of fits the need of the moment. What I'm going to say to you this morning, I have shared with some of you before. Uh, just shortly after I came to be the pastor here, which was a year ago, last January, I shared some of the things that I'm going to be sharing this morning. And since it was so early in my ministry here, many of you were not here. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say that over 50% of the people that are in this place this morning were not with us uh, that time when I came here. The congregation was a lot smaller, and, uh, and so a lot, many people have come into the fellowship uh, since I shared this message with you almost a year and a half, almost two years ago. But given the time and given the place where we are as a people, and given the juncture at which we find ourselves as a congregation, I felt that it would be time and it would be good for me to go back and share some of these things with you again. And so I want us to go back this morning, and I want us to think again on the topic of mightiness or mediocrity, which is in fact the church's choice. Now, if I were to ask you this morning personally, if you would like to be a mighty person or a mediocre person, I doubt that there's anyone here this morning that would say, James, I would just as soon prefer to be a mediocre person. As a matter of fact, that's really what I would prefer. I would prefer to be a mediocre individual. Now, if I uh, were to ask you men, do you desire to be mighty or mediocre in sports? 
Now, I know that most of you would stand and say that you don't want to be mediocre in sports. In fact, I've uh, competed against some of you in softball and golf and various things. Sometimes it's competition, sometimes it's slaughter. But uh, I, know, uh, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you take your sport seriously and that you wouldn't want anybody to say of you, well, he's just a mediocre softball player, he's just a mediocre center fielder, he's just a mediocre golfer. In your business, men, I doubt that there's one of you that would stand this morning and say that you would be satisfied to be classified and to be mediocre in your business. I know that to not be true because I've talked with you, I've prayed with you, and I know what your businesses are doing. And your desire as a businessman is to be the very best that you can possibly be, to do it for the Lord, but to be the very best to reach your potential as a businessman. And you wouldn't want to be classified as a mediocre businessman in your family life. I doubt that there's anyone here that would say that they would be willing to be classified as a mediocre family member. You fathers that are here this morning, you want to be the best father that you can possibly be. You want to be the best mother, you mothers that are here, that you can possibly be. You want to be the best husband that you can possibly be. You want to be the best wife that you can possibly be. There's not anybody here, not any of you dads here, that would like to have your children stand up in an open meeting and say, my dad is just a mediocre dad. <laughs> he's not too great, but he's not too shot either. He's just kind of an average dad. If you've seen one dad, you've seen them all. My dad is just kind of the mediocre, kind of the run-of-the-mill dad. None of you would like that because, you see, you don't want to be labeled. You don't want to have that albatross of the label of mediocrity hanging around your neck in any area of your life. Let me ask you this morning a very important question, though. If that's true about your personal life, then what is your goal for your church? What is your goal for the body of the living Lord Jesus that meets here at 7510 John T. White Road under the name of the Cornerstone Baptist Church? And the church is not the building. The church is the people who know Jesus and have Jesus dwelling within them. What is your goal? What is your vision for your church? Would you be satisfied if the Cornerstone Baptist Church was known as a mediocre and average church? Would it bother you if you came to, to worship next Sunday morning and there was a sign out front here that said, Cornerstone Baptist Church, a mediocre church, <laughs> an average church, not too hot, but then again, not really too cold, just an average, run-of-the-mill, mediocre Southern Baptist Church. Would that bother you if we had the label as the people of God of just being an average, mediocre church would that bother you at all or would you rather when people speak about the cornerstone baptist church would you rather them say that's an alive church that's a church that's on fire for jesus that's a church that has a pastor that preaches the gospel that's a church that's full of people that are on fire for the lord jesus and that are making an impact on their community and on their city and on their world as much as they are possibly able to make would you rather that be the label that people hung on our church than an average mediocre church would you just assume that they look at cornerstone baptist church and say that's an average church it's a mediocre church it's a it's just your average run-of-the-mill southern baptist church you know if you've seen one you've seen them all and oftentimes that's really the truth or would you rather have people say you can't come into that place you can't gather with that church you can't gather with those people without coming away convinced that jesus is alive and well and that he's working in the midst of his people in power and that those people are having an impact in every area of their community, in every area of the life of the people that touch them. That's the church's choice. Mightiness or mediocrity. 
And it's sad, but it's true, that oftentimes we have been satisfied. We have been satisfied to be a part of a mediocre church, to be a part of an average church and have no vision and no goal that goes anywhere beyond that. But in our own personal lives, we set these high goals, these high visions for our, vi for our business, for our families, for every area of our life. But then we're satisfied to be average as the people of God. We're satisfied to be mediocre as a church, as the people of God. Well, if your choice is to be mediocre, then all you have to do is nothing. You know, everywhere today, everywhere today, throughout this city, throughout this county, throughout this state, and throughout this world, there are mediocre churches meeting. There are average churches meeting. You don't have to go very far to find an average church. They're all over the place all over the place. Like we used to say about Mustangs when Mustangs came out, you know, they're all over, everybody's got one. <laughs> you know, everybody had one. Mediocre, average churches are on every corner in our city. Now, many of them are great churches. Some of them are great churches, but there are many average, mediocre churches. Mediocre preachers preaching mediocre sermons to mediocre people in mediocre churches making a mediocre impact upon people around them and upon their community. And if that is your choice, then all you have to do is nothing. You can do nothing and be an average church. You don't have to do anything to be a mediocre church. Just meet at 10.50 on Sunday morning and at 6.30 on Sunday night and sometimes at 6.30 on Wednesday nights. Just meet together and you'll be an average, a mediocre church. But I guarantee you folks, if we're gonna be a mighty church, if we are going to be classified as a mighty church that's making an impact upon our society and upon our community, there are some things that are going to have to happen. If we're going to make that kind of difference, then there are going to have to be some things that characterize our fellowship. But first of all, that must characterize us as individuals because, you see, the church is made up of individuals. And we're never going to grow any, anymore. We're never going to become more, any more uh, uh, mighty than we are as individuals collectively. And if we are going to be a mighty church and not a mediocre church, then some things are going to have to happen. And I believe we're at that crossroads. I really do. I believe that we are at that crossroads as a church where we are going to have to decide, are we going to go on or are we going to stop? Are we going to be average? Are we going to be classified as mediocre? Or are we going to go on and trust God to do some mighty things? Are we going to go on and let the Lord have his way and move us to make an impact upon our community? What are some of those things that are going to have to happen? I want to give a few of them this morning. If you're visiting with us and you're not a part of this fellowship, I want to include you in this message because you need to be a part of a fellowship somewhere. You may be a member of a church somewhere. You may very well be. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you satisfied for that church of which you are a member to be an average church, to be a mediocre church? God may use this message this morning to take you back to that fellowship that you are a part of and breathe some life there and do some challenging there for that church to get up and get with it and quit playing games. Maybe you're not a member of a fellowship and, and God would lead you to be a part of this church. Let me ask you the question. What kind of fellowship would you like to be a part of? What kind of church do you have a desire to be linked with? Is it a mighty church or is it a mediocre kind of church? If we're going to be that kind of mighty church, first of all, we must demonstrate a burdened heart. We must demonstrate a burdened heart. Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 3. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, he says. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If we're going to be a mighty church, then we as a people are going to have to demonstrate a burdened heart. Paul is the one that is speaking here in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And Paul was a tremendous soul winner. You cannot study the life of Paul without understanding that Paul had a burden for lost people and that Paul was a winner of souls. He preached the gospel everywhere that he went. He didn't just talk about it, but Paul lived it. Everywhere he went, he shared Jesus. And in these verses, in the, opening chapter, in the opening verses of chapter 9, Paul is speaking about his own countrymen here. He's going back and he's thinking about the Jews. He's thinking about his own countrymen. And Paul was a Jew. He was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew. He had been a Pharisee before he became a Christian. He had been a persecutor of Christians. And then that day, Paul was on his way to Damascus, on the Damascus Road, and he was going for the purpose of persecuting more Christians and putting more Christians to death. And on the Damascus Road, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision and brought Paul to his knees. And after that experience, Paul committed his heart and his life to Jesus Christ. He received Jesus as his Messiah, as his Lord, as his Master, as his Savior. He was a Jew, but the majority of the Jews, the majority of his countrymen still did not receive Christ. They still rejected Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And now in chapter 9, Paul is reflecting upon that fact that most of his countrymen have rejected the, the, the Jewish Messiah, have rejected Christ, and his burden becomes so intense that Paul almost cries out in these opening verses in chapter 9. And he says, if my people... If the Jews, if the Israelites, if those people from which I came would just be willing to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, he says, I would be willing to be accursed. He says, I would be willing to be cut off from Jesus. I would be willing to go to hell, Paul says, if my countrymen, if the Jews would just come and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. What an incredible burden. And I don't believe that Paul is just saying words here. I believe that he's, he's, they're issuing from a heart of genuineness and sincerity. That Paul is meaning what he's saying. If my people, the Jews, would just come to Jesus and be saved, then I would be willing to pay the price and go to hell and be separated from Jesus for eternity if they would just do that. Paul didn't just say that, but he backed it up with his actions. How many times in the scripture do you read of Paul going into a city and being nearly, literally stoned almost to death, and being dragged to the city limits and left there for dead, or being thrown in jail and being cursed at and being spat upon for simply preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he did that everywhere he went. How many times do you read in the scripture of that happening to the apostle Paul simply for preaching the gospel? He was so burdened. He was so burdened for lost people that he was willing to lay his life on the line. Now let me ask you, can you say that? I have to ask myself the question. Can I say that? Do you and do I have that kind of burden for lost people? To be willing to say, Father, I would separate myself from Jesus. I would be willing to go to hell if you would just save my neighbor. If you would just save my boss. If you just save that person that I work with. God, I'd be willing to be separated from Jesus for eternity if you just do that. What a burden. That's the kind of burden that Paul had. Imagine, imagine the impact of the Cornerstone Baptist Church on this community and on this city. If everybody here had that kind of burden for lost people, 
If everybody here had that kind of burning desire to preach the gospel and to see people come to know Jesus, to be willing to say with Paul, I'd go to hell if this person would just be saved. Can you imagine the hundreds and even thousands of people that would come to know Jesus as a result of our lives going out during the week if we had that kind of burden for lost people? Thousands would be saved in the city. God would bless this congregation in a way that it never dreamed possible. He would use this people of God to call those unto himself whom he had chosen. And we would get the blessing of being used of God. A story comes out of preacher's life that I heard of a very, very popular preacher that had been invited to preach in a West Texas church, a revival meeting. He was a very, very well-known man, a very highly acclaimed preacher of the gospel. And this little West Texas town was just alive with anticipation about the fact that this man, who was so well-known, was going to come and was going to be preaching a revival meeting in the First Baptist Church of that little community. The morning came for that first service, and the place was packed to capacity, much maybe like ours is this morning. It was packed to capacity, and people were excited about hearing this great man of God, this great preacher of the gospel, preach the gospel. And they were looking forward to just hearing an inspiring message that morning from this man. And, and many, many lost people were there, and just the place was just packed. It was just filled, and you could sense the electricity of excitement and anticipation. The time came for the message that morning, and the preacher stood at the pulpit, and he opened his sermon with this introduction. He said, I wish that I could tell you that I was a product of your Sunday school. He says, I wish that I could stand this morning and tell you that you as a people, as a church, had loved me as a little boy into the kingdom of God. I wish that I could say that as a result of your work and your commitment and your burden for lost people, that I could stand this morning before you and say that as a little boy, you led me to faith in Jesus Christ. I wish I could say that. But he said, I can't say that this morning because I lived in your town when I was a little boy. He says, most of you don't know that, but when I was a little boy, I lived in your town. And I came to your church a few times, as a matter of fact. But he said, then my mother died, and I didn't have anybody to bring me to church, and so I quit coming. And he said, I lived on the side of town and in the area of town that was not the, the best part of town. As a matter of fact, the streets were not even paved in my little neighborhood where I lived. And, and when you drove your car down that street, down that, that dirt road, the, the, the potholes were so deep sometimes that if you weren't careful, it would drag the muffler off of your automobile. And he said, I really couldn't expect you to come. He said, I really had no right, I guess, to expect you to come all that way to the edge of town and drive in, on those kinds of roads and come into that, that kind of neighborhood to just pick one little boy up and bring him to church. He said, I really had no right to expect you to do that, but had you been willing, I would have been happy and I would have loved to have come. He said, soon after my mother died, my father and I moved to a, another community and it was in that community, it was in that place that a church began to take an interest in me and they began Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to come and to pick me up and, and to take me to church. And even when it wasn't convenient, they, they came and they brought me to church and they loved me. And it was through the ministry of that church, it was through the ministry of those people that I came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He said, I wish that I could stand this morning and say that it had been you that had done that, but I can't say it. What a blessing they'd missed. 
What a blessing they'd missed. Imagine the blessing that congregation could have had to have said that they had been used of God to reach out to a little boy that later grew into manhood and became a great, powerful preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus and how their ministry would have been expanded around this country and around the world as that man went and preached the gospel. But he said, I can't say that. Because you see, when it was easy, they reached out. But when, the, when it became difficult, their burden didn't quite go that far. Didn't quite go that far. And so God just moved that young boy into another community and he used another people and he gave the blessing to another family of people, another church somewhere else to lead that young boy to faith in Jesus. Listen, folks, if we're going to be a mighty church, we're going to have to be a church that demonstrates a burdened heart like Paul. How far does our burden go? How far are we willing to go as a people of God? How much are we willing to sacrifice? And what are we willing to do to do what it takes to reach this community for Jesus? Not only must we demonstrate a burdened heart, we must desire a bountiful harvest. Take your Bibles and turn to John, the fourth chapter. John chapter four, and we'll read verse 35 together. John four thirty-five. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are already white for harvest. Desire a bountiful harvest. Jesus is in the little area called Samaria at this time. It's a little area that was sandwiched in the midst of the little country of Palestine it was in the very center there of that place. And the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. There was tremendous animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Not only did the Jews hate the Samaritans, but the Samaritans returned their hatred and they hated the Jews. The reason there was such animosity between the two groups is because the Samaritans were only half Jews. They were the result of intermarrying of the Jews with Gentiles. And to a Jew, that was about the worst thing that you could possibly do to marry someone other than a Jew. And so this little group of people had congregated there in the middle of that little area of Palestine and had their own little country there. And it was the country of Samaria and had a city, a capital city of Samaria. And so for centuries, this animosity had existed between these half-Jews, the Samaritans, and the full-blooded Jews. And Jesus is in that place and is about to preach and is about to minister to these half-Jews, these Samaritans, for the gospel. And I imagine if the disciples that were with Jesus there had appointed a committee to decide if the Samaritans were ready to hear the gospel, if they were ready to receive the Jewish Messiah, then they would have come back unanimously with the decision, the Samaritans aren't ready, Jesus. That would have been the committee report that they would have come back with. They are not ready, Jesus, to hear you preach. They're not ready to come to you as their Messiah. They would have agreed that the Samaritans, these low-down half-breeds, they needed Jesus. They would have agreed with that unanimously, that they needed Christ, that they needed a Savior. But they would have said, but they're not ready. And even if they were ready, Jesus, let somebody else tell them <laughs> because we don't want to mess with these half-Jew Samaritans. And so Jesus is just outside of their city and Jesus looks up and he sees perhaps hundreds, maybe even thousands of these Samaritans coming across the field and the Samaritans dress themselves in white robes. And so Jesus sees these hundreds, maybe even thousands of these Samaritans. They're coming across the fields there wearing their white robes. And Jesus looks and he says, you say that there are yet four months to the harvest. But he said, look, look, the fields are already white. He's not referring to wheat. He's referring to people. 
He's referring to Samaritans as with their white robes as they came across that, that, that grain field. And he looked at them and he said, listen, guys, the harvest is now. It's not four months from now. It's not next year. It's not next month. It's now the fields are white right now. The Samaritans are ready. And in verse 40, 39 and 40 tell us that Jesus was exactly right because he preached there. And it says many of the Samaritans believed. As a matter of fact, they even begged Jesus to stay with them longer and preach the gospel longer. If we're going to be a mighty church, not only are we going to have to demonstrate a burdened heart, but we are also going to have to desire a bountiful harvest. We are going to have to de de desire a bountiful harvest. The fields are white. The harvest is ready now, not next week, not next month, not next year, but the fields are white right now. We are going to have to see the world through the eyes of Jesus. And when Jesus looks at any lost man and lost woman, he says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for harvest. The harvest is ready, but the laborers, he says, are few. You know what happens in a mediocre church? Something tragic happens in a mediocre church. The important becomes overshadowed by the insignificant. What happens in a mediocre church is that what is of primary importance begins to be overshadowed by the insignificant. In a mediocre church, you can draw a crowd for almost anything. You can draw a crowd for any sport event. You can draw a crowd for even a musical event. You can draw a crowd for dinner on the grounds. You can draw a crowd for almost any reason. But when you mention the priority of the church, which is to win the lost world of Jesus, the crowd begins to thin. Because you see, in a mediocre church, what happens is that that which is of primary importance, that which is the church's mission given from the very mouth of Jesus himself, begins to be covered up by the things that are insignificant. In that body. That's characteristic of a mediocre church. One characteristic of a people that get things done, whether it's in business, whether it's in family life, whether it's in spiritual matters, whatever, one characteristic of people that get things done is the ability to block out the insignificant. The ability to block out the things that are of not the most primary importance. We must, as a people of God, if we are going to be a mighty church and not a mediocre church, we are going to have to learn what it means to not be sidetracked, to not be sidetracked into side issues, but to keep that one primary purpose as foremost in our hearts and in our minds and let nothing that is insignificant overshadow that. You see, we don't have the time to be sidetracked. Folks, quite frankly, there is a world that is dying and going to hell. Do I sound like a Baptist preacher? Forgive me, I am. But, but long before I am a Baptist preacher, folks, I'm a preacher of the truth, I hope, and I pray to God. I'm a preacher of the gospel, of the word of God, the inerrant, infallible word of God. Don't be afraid of those words. That's what it is. That's my commitment. That's my life's call. That's our commitment as the people of God to be committed to the things that God is committed to and not the things that are insignificant. And if that means being labeled as a yelling, screaming, stomping Baptist preacher, then so be it. I'm willing to be that. If we can just keep our eyes on the goal, on what's important and not be sidetracked into things that are insignificant. And those things I mentioned are important. Yes, they are. And they can be used of God, but sometimes we allow them to become the first priority. And the thing that is God's priority gets overshadowed with things that in eternity 
are going to mean nothing. In eternity, they'll mean nothing. They'll count for nothing. The only thing that counts is that which is done by the Spirit of God when people come to know Jesus. That's all that counts. There was more I was going to say about that, but our time is drawing close. And I understand the seed can only, or the mind can only retain what the seed can withstand. So we're going to move on to the last point. We must demonstrate a burdened heart. We must desire a bountiful harvest. Jesus looked and he said, hey, you're putting it off. Don't put it off anymore. The fields are white. The harvest is ready. The only problem is the laborers are few. Get into the field, Jesus says, and harvest. And then number three, we must develop a believing habit. Develop a believing habit to become a mighty church. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to the apostle. Just one little short verse. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In a mediocre church, you'll find people all the time saying it can't be done. In a mediocre church, you'll hear people, that'll be the reverberating chorus to every song that they sing. It can't be done. We never did it that way before anyway, and the reason we never did it that way is because we never believed it could be done that way, and it can't be done that way. It'll never work. It never has, so don't try it. That's the chorus to every song that you hear in a mediocre church. In a mighty church, you hear this. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives us strength. Now, folks, I'm not talking about positive thinking. I don't put a whole lot of uh, value on the modern positive thinking movement, quite frankly. I think it's pretty much humanistic. pretty much depends on the human ability, and anything that depends on the human ability is not of God. So I'm not talking here about positive thinking that puts confidence in my flesh that put con puts confidence in my ability to achieve something and my ability to do something. No, I'm not talking about positive thinking. Not that. I'm talking about a God confidence. I'm talking about a confidence in a God that is able to do anything that his people are willing to let him do through them. That's the kind of thinking I'm talking about. That's the kind of believing habit that characterizes a mighty church. Quite frankly, our challenges are beyond us. Our challenges are beyond positive thinking, folks. <laughs> we, we left positive thinking a long time ago. The challenges that we're faced with here as a people to reach this community and do the things that it's going to take. Our challenges have long since passed up what is humanly possible. But we've got to come back to the Scripture. And the Scripture says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus had that encounter with this rich young man, this rich young ruler. And the scripture says that the rich young man went away from Jesus very sad because he loved his riches more than he loved the Lord. He wanted to worship his riches more than he wanted to worship the Lord. And as that young man, that wealthy young man was walking off, Jesus said these words. He said, it is very hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were standing there with Jesus and they spoke out in despair. They said, oh no, if that's so, then who can be saved, Jesus? And Jesus said, with man, it's not possible. But he said, with God, all things are possible. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, with man, it's not possible for a man's heart to be changed. 
It's not possible for a man that worships things to turn and change his heart and worship me and worship the Lord. It's not possible. With man, that's not possible. But he said, with God, with God, all things are possible. God can do what man cannot do when his people believe him for it. When his people develop a believing habit that doesn't put confidence in the flesh, but puts confidence in God and says, God is able if he leads us. Quit looking through the eyes of man and look through the eyes of God and see the world the way that Jesus sees the world and see everything around here the way that Jesus sees it and just say, God, we're not going to do it, but we know that you are and we're yielded to you and we're willing to pay the price. We're willing to do whatever we have to do, God, for you to accomplish your purpose in the midst of us. A mighty church never limits God, never limits God, but says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me give you a few things real quickly that you'll hear in a mediocre church. Let them never be heard here. Let them never be said by the Cornerstone Baptist Church. Let me give you a few things that you'll hear a mediocre church say, though. You'll hear folks say, well, you know, some things never change. Ever heard that? We know, James, some things never change. I don't know why. My God's in the business of changing things. I'm living testimony of that. God is able to change. But you'll hear in a mediocre church, some things, you know, never change. We just kind of have to accept them. Another thing you'll hear in a mediocre church is something like this. But you can't expect the impossible. <laughs> Why not? Show me chapter and verse that says that God's people can't expect him to do the impossible. Jesus says with man it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. So don't ever say we can't expect the impossible. A third thing you might hear is, well, pastor, in my years, I've learned to be reasonable. <laughs> Learn to be reasonable. Listen, when you operate on the basis of human reason, you just tied God's hands. When you operate on the basis of what the spreadsheet says to you or what the rule book says to you, then you just limited God. You just limited him. You just tied his hands. You just said, we're going to operate according to human wisdom and not according to godly wisdom. We're going to believe God to do what he said he's going to do. And then, fourth thing you might hear is something like this. Well, we're doing pretty good under the circumstances. <laughs> and I, I think you can probably say that around here. We, you know, under the circumstances, we're doing pretty good. And so that might be something that somebody might be tempted to say, don't ever let that be said. They were doing pretty good under the circumstances. Let me ask you, since when do God's people operate under the circumstances? We operate over the circumstances. We're overcomers through Jesus who lives within us. Is that not right? Don't ever be said, let it be said, well, but we're doing pretty good under the circumstances. I don't want to be under the circumstances. I don't want to be guilty of limiting God and putting myself beneath the circumstances of this world. My God is able. My God's a big God. He's a powerful God and he owns everything. He is able. Can you imagine a football coach coming in after spring training before the season starts and says, guys, we're not going to win a game this year. We're not going to win a game. I'm convinced of that. Have you seen our schedule? Have you seen the teams that we are going to have to play? We're not going to win a game, guys. We're probably not even going to score a touchdown much less win. 
And then he might say, besides that, if I were you, if I were in your place, I probably wouldn't even play football this year. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be on the sidelines, but you're going to be out there on the field. And if I was you, if I were in your place, I probably wouldn't even go out on the field this year. Have you seen those guys? They're big. You can get hurt out there. We're not going to win a game. Oh, we're going to play. We're going to play, I guess, if you want to. But we're not going to win, and we're, not, we're just going to try to stay alive, okay? Let's just stay alive on the field, all right? Don't get any necks broken or anything. Can you imagine a football coach doing that? No, that's ridiculous. But isn't that what we do with God? When we come to the Father and we say, but God, we can't do it. We can't try something new because it hasn't been done before. Look at the challenges, God. It's not possible. We're just not even going to try. We're just going to roll over and die. Isn't that what we do with God? Paul comes back and says, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our challenges are great, but our God is great. And that's the only reason that it's possible is because we serve a great God. Don't ever say so-and-so can't ever be saved. It's not true. God is able. Where man is not able, God is able. I told you the story before. Let me tell you quickly once again. Robert and Gary Ward, two young boys that I grew up with. They were my age. Robert was my age. Gary was a year younger than me. I trusted Jesus as Savior when I was a senior in high school, and the Lord changed my life drastically. I became a new creature in Christ in every way, put away all of the things that had been a part of my life, all of my life. Two summers after I got saved, I was a college student, and I went home one summer just for a day or two, met up with Gary Ward, and had, hadn't seen Gary in, in several years. We'd been in grade school together. I talked Gary into moving to Dallas with me that summer to get an apartment and work at Merchant's Fast Motor Lines. We worked on the freight docks in Dallas that summer from about three in the afternoon till midnight every night. And we had an apartment together. And every night when we would come in, we'd go swimming in the, in the pool, even though the sign said pool closes at 10 o'clock. We'd go swimming in the pool and then we'd go back to our apartment. And I'd open the scriptures and I'd begin to read the Bible to Gary and explain to him as best I understood what God's word said. One morning, about three o'clock in the morning, Gary said, James, get up. I said, what's the matter, Gary? I didn't know if he wanted to fight or what. Uh, he said, get up. And I said, what's, what's wrong? He said, I'm not a Christian, and I need to be, and I want to be. So right there in our apartment, we kneeled, and Gary prayed to trust Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Two weeks later, the summer was over. Gary went back home to Monahans, and I went back to Baylor, back to college. Robert, by this time, had become a $300 a day heroin addict. Robert and I had begun doing drugs together when we were 12 years old. And when I was a senior in high school, the Lord saved me and changed my life. But Robert continued and just slowly escalated into heroin use. And by this time became a $300 a day addict. The only way that he could support that kind of habit was obviously to be involved in the drug trade himself. And that's what he was doing. He was smuggling dope out of old Mexico, across our state lines, into our state to support his own habit. Gary got burdened for Robert, his brother, that Robert needed to know Jesus. So Gary began to pray for Robert, began to lift him up to the Lord every day. And then he came to Robert, eyeball to eyeball, and confronted him with the claims of Christ. Robert was about 40 pounds lighter than he had been when we graduated from high school because of his heroin addiction, was really obviously within six or eight months going to die. Gary shared Jesus with Robert, and Robert trusted Christ as Savior and committed himself to put the needle away. And he did. He threw it away. Robert braced himself for cold turkey, for withdrawal. He'd been through it a couple of times. It nearly killed him once, but he was willing to do it to get off the needle. He waited one day. It didn't come. 
He waited the second day. It didn't come. The third day, it didn't come. There was no withdrawal. God spared him that. He trusted the Lord Jesus as Savior, and God sovereignly chose to spare Robert that agony of cold turkey. Today, Robert and Gary Ward live in Stephenville, Texas. Robert is remarried to his wife who had divorced him because of his drug habit. The Lord put that family back together. Robert and Gary are in business together in a, an insulation business in Stephenville, Texas. Gary is a part-time uh, funeral director in Stephenville and pastors a little church out on the edge of Stephenville, a little country church. And Robert and his wife are serving the Lord faithfully in a body of believers there in Stephenville, Texas. Why? Because Gary said, God is able. Because Gary said, God is able to save my brother if he chooses. And Gary believed God for Robert and for Robert's salvation. What's the characteristic of a mighty church? A mighty church demonstrates a burdened heart like Paul. I'd be willing to die, Lord, if you'd save my boss, my neighbor, my husband, my wife. Desires a bountiful harvest, is willing to go the extra mile, is willing to pay the price to harvest the fields that Jesus says are already white. And thirdly, develops a believing habit, believes God, believes that he is able to do anything he chooses to do through his people. Let's don't limit God, folks. Let's don't limit him. Let's let him do what he wants to do. Don't ever let those things be said as a part of our fellowship. Let's don't limit God. Let's believe him for great things. Only those things that are going to bring honor and going to be glory to him. Let's be willing to pay the price. Let's be willing to do whatever it takes to allow the Lord to work in us and through us. Let's pray together.